welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. I'm thrilled to get to introduce you to my guest today, Kelly Nikandeha. Kelly is an author, speaker, theologian, and social justice advocate. She's the co-director and chief storyteller for Communities of Hope, a community development enterprise in Burundi, Africa. She and her husband also co-founded Amarejo, an African conversation for African thinkers and practitioners. In this episode, Kelly shares her story of being an adopted child raised in a typical American Christian home, but it's her bicultural marriage and living in Burundi, Africa that has most impacted her theology. We talk about what it means for her to be a liberation theologian and how that fuels her passion for setting people free from all kinds of oppression. Finally, Kelly and I dive into her newest book, Defiant, What the Women of Exodus Teaches About Freedom. And let me tell you, this is a powerful book and message that Kelly has to share. In Defiant, Kelly weaves together the stories of the Exodus women with the stories of liberators throughout history, and she invites all women into this call for freedom. As Kelly says, we get to participate in the liberation work of our day, in our youth or advanced age, as mothers, as unmarried women, as wives and sisters, whether we are the ones hemmed in by injustice or the ones with privilege. The Exodus story is our story. We will get started then. Kelly, welcome. <laughs> welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's a delight to be with you today. Well, I always say this, but I really am looking forward to talking to you today because I just finished your book this morning and it has been, it's been a gift to me during this time of being uh, quarantined and mm-hmm. I don't even want to say stuck at home, being able to be at home and be safe and just really digging into your book and the Exodus narrative and your story. So I just want to thank you for your book and the timing it was released was really good. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. It took a while to bring it to publication, but it seems like it's hitting the right time. Let's just dive in, Kelly, if you could tell us just your, just your kind of your personal biography about where you live, your kids, your husband, and that, and then we'll dive into your story. Sure. Well, as you said, my name is Kelly Nukundeha. You might guess from my last name that uh, my husband uh, hails from a different part of the world. He is Burundian, born and raised in East Africa on you know, he grew up in less than a dollar a day kind of poverty. And I only share that because it actually has been a huge part of my own story, being from America, married to somebody from an opposite socioeconomic paradigm has really been transformative for me. Uh, We have adopted two children, Justin and Emma. Uh, They're both 16 now, but we brought them home right before they turned two years old. And they're both Burundian as well. Okay. So Burundia, that is located in Africa. And I'll admit I had to look it up. Sure. The first time I ever heard the word Burundi was when my husband introduced himself and said where he was from. And I was so embarrassed because I didn't know, is it a region? Is it a country? Is it a city? I mean, I had no idea. So I absolutely understand it is not familiar to most people, but it's a very small country in East Africa, borders Rwanda, Congo, and Tanzania. So it's right in the heart of Africa. You have a fascinating story just with giving your bio. We start to hear that. Take us back to the beginning, your origin story. And I know that's complicated in itself because you don't you don't know a lot of it. So can you start Can you start there for us? Sure. Well, I am an adopted child. So my story really begins, uh, you know, when people ask, it's that I'm adopted. I was, uh, my parent adopted me when I was three months old from a Catholic adoption agency uh, in Los Angeles. And it was a closed adoption. So I knew nothing 
about my biological family other than my biological mother was uh, Mexican and my biological father was uh, most likely English or Irish. That's all I knew. And so then I grew up, you know, in Southern California in a middle-class family. I started off in the Catholic church and then my parents moved into a evangelical space and took me with them. So I had a very, I'd say a very easy, comfortable childhood and yeah, a good life as a California girl. So growing up, growing up adopted, not knowing a lot of that story, you had a priv pretty privileged life growing up. Were you raised predominantly in white spaces? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I was raised in white, evangelical, upper class, Republican mm. spaces. Absolutely. Okay. So of course, that's me too. And of course, that just shapes so much of our perspective on our life. Yes. So as far as the church, tell me about your, you said you started at Catholic as in a Catholic church, and then you moved to evangelical spaces. Just talk a little about that and the message that you got in your relationship with the Lord and Jesus. So I talk about the Catholic church as being my mother church. Uh, I was, as I mentioned, adopted through a Catholic adoption agency. So it is, you know, I was born into that world. It, you know, those were the women who took care of me and fostered me until they connected with my adoptive parents. And I remember so many of my firsts happened in the Catholic church, the my first communion, my the first experiences with Sunday school and so many Many of the biblical stories. My, the first time I was introduced to the Holy Spirit and, and had a, an experience with the Holy Spirit, all of that happened under the auspices of the Catholic Church. Uh, but when I was maybe in junior high, my parents had their own exodus, as it were, out of the Catholic Church and into an evangelical non-denominational, spirit-filled church. And of course, they took me with them. And uh, so that was my, that was most of my formation happened in evangelical spaces. Uh, I went on to college at Westmont College uh, in Santa Barbara, also a you know, an evangelical Christian college, graduated from there. And when I found my own place to worship, it was a vineyard church. And so I was part of the vineyard world for about a dozen years of my adult life. And, you know, in the last set of years, I have actually returned to my mother church mm. and have found great comfort and solace and welcome uh, being back in the Catholic church. So that's, you know, I, I feel like I'm ecclesiastically promiscuous mm -hmm. uh, because I feel very comfortable in evangelical. Well, I feel comfortable with evangelical thinking. Some of the spaces have become very uncomfortable in the last set of years with some of right. the changes. But in terms of my friendships with evangelical, all of my friends, that's not a problem. I love my Methodist brothers and sisters, and I feel comfortable in Anglican spaces. And so I feel comfortable in a lot of spaces in the church. But I went home to my mother church yeah, for, for worship. And that's such a great story and example of an evolving faith. I mean, mm -hmm. my daughter and I went to the Evolving Faith Conference this last year because oh, we're, we're experiencing that too. And your story is just just one of that. But still, and then going back to your Catholic roots is a pretty, is a neat part of your story. And mm -hmm. I know, like you mentioned a little bit in the intro that meeting your husband and being in a bicultural marriage, that's 
influenced your faith and outlook too. So can you talk, tell us how did you meet your husband? And then <laughs> like the short version, cause I know you could probably, <laughs> how, how did you meet somebody that is from Africa that lives on a sure. dollar a day and how that started to shape your faith and outlook? Really, you could write a romantic comedy about our, <laughs> our, um, our story. And I, there again, I'm going to work, I'm going to try and be brief. Okay. But uh, I was uh, for a season when I left the vineyard church, my holding pattern was a local Episcopal congregation, small little bitty church, and the rector had a passion for reconciliation. And so a couple times a year, he would host like a four-day seminar on on reconciliation. And, you know, as a parishioner, I was invited. And he would always try and bring somebody from the outside to give us an international perspective, along with some of the more domestic conversations around being reconciled to one another. And through a series of funny stories, he ended up connecting with my husband in, in Burundi. So Burundi has struggled with you know 30 or 40 years of civil war, uh, similar to Rwanda. So the same dynamics that provoked the genocide in Rwanda are also operational in Burundi because they're the same people groups, the same tribal hatred and animosity. And so uh, my husband came to be part of our conversations, but as somebody who has lived through that kind of tribal hostility and has seen the ravages of unreconciled relationships. And so, you know, there was about 50 of us at this event and during, you know, they broke us up into small groups. And if I wanted to talk to my then boyfriend at the time, I had to talk to this African guy because he was in the same small group and they just, you know, formed a friendship. And so it became the three of us for the, for the next four days. But that was the the genesis of what became a four-year friendship, long, you know, long-distance friendship over email. And then and we kind of went from being best friends to getting married. <laughs> wow. Wow. And then you haven't always lived in the States either because you, you have ministries now right. in Africa and you've lived in both cultures. And I'm sure that Correct. has just been instrumental in shaping your faith and right. your narrative. So tell me with that, how did that specifically start to change? And, may, and I'm sure growing up in the evangelical church, you got a message about women in the Bible and those narratives and what freedom looked like and then with your marriage. So tell me how all that maybe started to morph into, because you wrote a book, Defiant, about the women that were defiant. So you don't go from being, you know, a white privileged girl in an an evangelical church to writing that book. So is that a slow process? Or if you want to just talk a little bit about that? Uh, Yes, it was a slow process. It absolutely was. Uh, You know, I am not a natural expat. So a lot of people have dreams of being missionaries, or they have dreams of living abroad, they want to be part of the diplomatic corps somewhere, or they, you know, have wanderlust in their heart from an early mm-hmm. age. That was never me. I never had visions of living elsewhere, being a missionary, etc. That was never me. Uh, I didn't have a passport until the first time I went to Burundi to meet Claude's family. Oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, it was a huge shift to go from a very small, white, domesticated life to being partnered with somebody who grew up in extreme poverty amid civil war. And, and in, in so many ways, he was my opposite. You know, I'm an only mm-hmm. child. He's one of 13. Wow. You know, I grew up 
you know, with, you know, everything I wanted. And he grew up with hardly anything he even needed. Uh, you know, I had, we used to joke that he grew up with one meal a day and I grew up with three meals a day plus snacks, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, mm -hmm. but you can't marry somebody who is so completely different without being deeply challenged, you know, because all of your decision-making, all of your conversations we could hardly turn a conversational corner where we weren't confronted with our differences. And sometimes that was hard, but most of the time we found it was really good because we didn't have a whole lot of blind spots. We were always challenging one another, always provoking each other. Right. Um, it gave our relationship a lot of texture, <laughs> I yeah. used to say. But for me, I mean, I'm probably, I would say I have been the most transformed. He would say the same, but nonetheless, because I had somebody who helped me see. Uh, I had never seen, I didn't even know what American exceptionalism was until I grew up with somebody who, for all its troubles, he still loved his country. And he was as proud to be Burundian as I was to be American. Yeah. And just something that simple, recognizing that he had such a deep love for his country the way I did mine, you know, I was raised to believe that everybody wanted to be an American. Everybody wanted to be us. But to actually, you know, be in a relationship with somebody who's like, hey, you guys have a lot of things going for you. And, and I love that. But none of that means that I don't love who I am and where I'm from and the culture that I have been gifted um, as part of my birthright. So, I mean, that was, you know, that just is a very, like I said, a very beginning of all these conversations about what is it to be, to have everything you want, to make decisions based on comfort instead of need, to make decisions about a job based on a sense of vocation and calling instead of whatever job comes along. You're, you're going to do it because that you need that. It's not about whether you're called or gifted or educated for that job. I mean, just, I just learned how privileged I was, how yeah. much I benefited from the hardship of others. And, and sometimes it was so painful to, to see that in myself. Uh, but, yeah. but he was such a compassionate partner. You know, he never made me right. feel guilty, but he definitely confronted me with those things and pulled me into deeper conversations so that I could start to see you know, in Burundi, we would say it's it's colonization, right? It's mm -hmm. having been colonized by other countries and still seeing the effects of colonization in Africa, and especially in Burundi. You know, you see the ways in which white people are preferred and yeah. white mechanisms have shaped the country and the education system and the church, et cetera. And boy, if I'm not a part of that, you know. <laughs> right. And you see it and it's, of course, that's here too. I mean, I don't know mm -hmm. why we... <laughs> Some have a hard time seeing it. I mean, I guess I do know why, but it's here too. But I guess I'm sure with you being right smack dab in the middle of it yes. with your bicultural marriage, and then you have two children and they're both adopted from Burundi as well. Is that correct? Correct. correct. So they're so, both, they look like him with that beautiful yeah. ebony skin. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. and I mean that, I know you've, you have another book called Adopted and that mm -hmm. could be another episode and in, in itself about have, being adopted and having adopted children. But I'm sure that charted to change your theology too, and about blessings, prosperity, privilege, all of that as well. Correct. So I know you say that you, how you read up the gospel is through liberation theology. Tell me what that means. 
for those that might not know. Sure. Uh, and I recognize that liberation theology comes with some baggage. Mm-hmm. Some people hear that and, and want to raise their fist and say, yes, you know, yeah. <laughs> and other yeah. people hear that and they shudder. You know, it's a very, can be a very frightening term. And I certainly grew up where that was shunned. The idea of liberation theology, a, a lot of us first heard about it in connection to Latin America and the Catholic priests in in Latin America who are also living through tumultuous times. And so when they held the gospel in the newspaper hand in hand, what became clear for them was that the the gospel was about full-bodied liberation, Mm -hmm. body and soul, not just souls being evacuated to heaven, but bodies also being redeemed and saved here on earth, as well as a spiritual salvation. Um, They refused to parse them. They saw them as a piece that they belonged together. Um, But we had often heard that, you know, Latin America and communism, and there's so many of our politics that were involved in that. Uh, So I was not taught that when I was in seminary, other than it was dangerous and um, unorthodox. Um, But you just can't get too deep into the stories of Jesus. You can't get too deep into the poetry of Isaiah or the story of Exodus. Um, And you can't live in outside of the outside of the States and, and live in these other realities and not see um, that there is more, you know, how right. can how can we talk about a soul being saved if the body is emaciated with hunger? If, mm-hmm. you know, my daughter lost both her parents to HIV AIDS, how can we not, you know, she often asks if Jesus could raise, if, if God could raise Jesus from the dead, why can't God, why couldn't he have raised my birth mother from the dead? Mm-hmm. Right? Like it becomes very real. <laughs> yes. Because that's uh, not a typical question we get here in America from our, right. from our children. Right. Yes. But yeah. for her, it was very clear the first time she saw a, a it was a beautiful char- uh, charcoal etching of the crucifix. And she was like, wait a minute. You know, she, it's like she put all those pieces together. The God who raises people. Why didn't, if he could raise mm-hmm. Jesus, if he could raise even Lazarus, right? She's heard that story. Why did he not raise my birth mom? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, a liberation theologian at heart, I would say, is that we see the story through the lens of liberation. We see that it is about um, freedom, mm-hmm. freedom from sin, yes, but it's also freedom from the systemic sins that we perpetuate in our societies. It's, you know, I like to think about Jesus, uh, as, the, as Luke tells the story, Jesus's first public sermon, he is in a synagogue and he pulls out the Isaiah scroll and he reads from the poetry of Isaiah about something we call Jubilee, people being set free. But what Jubilee is, if you read the Old Testament, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, and again in Isaiah, Jubilee is an economic practice. It's an economic policy from the Old Testament. And so Jesus stands in front of this little community on the side, you know, nearby Galilee, and he reads them about about an economic policy where people get their land back, people who struggle with indebtedness are going to get their debts forgiven, people are going to get a chance to get back into the economy. And then he looks at them and he says, you know, because I'm standing here, it's going to start today. 
you know, and people sometimes think that Jesus talked about heaven all the time. But his, you know, according to Luke, his inaugural conversation was about real life economics, because people in the Galilee region in the first century were poor. They were being taxed yeah. by Rome, taxed yeah. by the temple, taxed by their local authorities. They were losing their land. I mean, and so he he went to the heart of what was enslaving them, and it wasn't just their soul; it was the debt the economy. And so I look at that and say, well, how can we not understand that liberation right. has to be body and soul, right? <laughs> right, right. And like you just said, when you were saying kind of the foundation of your liberation theology, that Exodus plays, that played a huge role in that, yes. the narrative. And so when did you start getting, let's dive in and talk about <laughs> Defiant. So when sure. did you start getting that idea that this is the book I want to write, or is that just something that's been on your mind for quite a while? How did that come about that you decided to write this book? Sure. Well, I uh, have always loved Moses from the time way back in the Catholic Church, you know, in catechism, one of the stories that always captivated me was the Moses story. And maybe some of it was that Moses was adopted like me. And so you see that resemblance as a child, somebody whose story is similar to mine. But I also love that he was, he was a deliverer. You know, he set people free. I always thought that that was so, that was just a cool thing as a kid to imagine. Um, and when I worked on my first book on, on adoption, his family is the really the one of the basic biblical pictures we have of a full adoptive family. We see the uh, the birth family and their struggles. We see the adopt uh, you know, the adoptive mother. We see Moses as the child in that triad. We even see him as an adult adoptee. And so when I leaned heavy into that as kind of the archetype for adoption, one of the things that stayed with me after I wrote that book was the mother's you know, his birth mother, Jochebed, and his adoptive mother, Bethia, what these women did, what they, uh, I was just captivated by them. And I think that combined with seeing the women in Burundi and uh, the ways in which they work and collaborated with each other and the strength that I saw in the rural women in Burundi, somehow intersecting with this Exodus story of these two mothers, I guess I just started to, it's like my eyes finally were able to see, just like I finally saw the strength of the women in Burundi. Um, I hadn't always. I hadn't always known that they were that strong and that capable, and that was part of my own blindness. But once I saw it in the fields of Burundi, I was able to see it in the text in Exodus. The, these hidden figures started to come to the fore, and I, over the next set of years, just devoured every commentary on Exodus I could find, read the story incessantly. I had it with me in my tote bag, you know, for the next set of years, everywhere I traveled. Um, and these women started to come alive in my own imagination. And at some point you just knew, I have to share. I have to share yeah. about these women because I think we need a better archetype. I needed something beyond the Martha and Mary narrative that I was given growing up. Absolutely. And I'll say, I, you know, I started reading your book and I, I'm like, I need to go reread Exodus because I'm not sure I've ever really read it correctly because I missed a lot. <laughs> I mean, really, because we, in this patriarchal culture and the interpretation of the Bible, I mean, we hear the men's stories and not the women's. Mm -hmm. And your book, I, one of the things you said about Moses, he would not have survived the Nile River, the brickyards of Egypt, or the darkened mm -hmm. desert without the Exodus story. 
strong women. And it's so true. And I'm like, how, how did I miss that? How did I miss that in teaching my daughters this story? Mm-hmm. And that's what I absolutely loved about this book and the stories that you intertwine in it. Why do you think, I mean, I know, but why, why are we in such a bad habit of skimming over the biblical, the female narratives? I mean, I don't even know if I'd call it a habit and that's a, probably a loaded question, but it just, it kind of blows my mind that we, we don't do that. Well, I mean, the, the, the text itself was written out of a patriarchal space, right? Right. A space dominated by men. Um, even the Exodus story itself, the book of Exodus begins with the 12 names of the sons of Jacob. And right away, we're supposed to know these are the leader, that we are being given the leadership structure, the 12 men. And so that is how, I mean, that is so typical of the worldview then and now, that these are the ones who lead us. And most often, I mean, look at how many pictures we get nowadays coming out of the White House and you see a room of white men Mm-hmm. that are the decision makers, right? These are the these are the ones. But the storyteller does this beautifully subversive thing because then he goes on to share about all these little moves that the 12 women make. And what we see is, ah, there's an alternative structure. There's an alternative leadership structure in operation here. It's the women. Yes. yes. You know, and, and in partnership, it took both the men and the women to, to be free. I, I'm not saying that the men don't have their place, but they can't, they can't get there without us, nor we without them. Uh, but yeah, we've been trained to see through the lens of, of the men, of the, the 12, you know, the 12 sons and, of Jacob. And the 12 women that you go into their stories, I mean, they've all, they all are defiant to, to the patriarchy or to the Pharaoh of their time. And yeah. we can so relate that to today. So what, mm-hmm. how do you see that relating to today or the message that you hope women today can take with, from that mm-hmm. and apply it to today's times? Sure. Well, I wrote a whole book, so I hope, <laughs> but I'll give you a few right, thoughts. Right, 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 right. No, you got to right. read the book if you really want to know that answer. <laughs> I'm just asking a quick sure. like overview and hoping this will whet people's yeah. to want to get this book. And again, I absolutely, I say this a lot, but this is one of my top favorite books. <laughs> oh, like I'm sending this you. book out. I'm letting five friends know that they're getting this book because I'm and I've led Bible studies for years. And I have a 17-year-old right. daughter who I'm going to talk to today. Like, I want to do yeah. this book together because it opens up so much more dialogue. And, you know, and we're taught so often as women traditionally to be silent mm-hmm. in the church or we can't be pastors. I mean, right. the, what we've been taught and what is reality are so different. And I think we just mm-hmm. need a new message. And your message mm-hmm. is one of of initiating this freedom and being defiant. And those are not messages that we give our girls in the church. So, right. yeah, well, so there, I, think, I know there's a lot that goes into that question and how, how to answer sure. it. But. Well, I think one thing is to recognize that Pharaoh then is not so different from our modern Pharaohs, right? Yes. Fixated on numbers, always thinking about greatness, always underestimating the women. The ways in which Pharaohs behave haven't changed much over the years. Uh, and I think it's, I think sometimes we can name them because there are people who clearly embody those pharaonic traits. Mm-hmm. But I also think anytime we see forces of deathliness, you know, that mean to extinguish life and push against freedom, we are up against pharaonic forces. Yes. Um, so that Exodus happened past tense, but it is happening now. And I think it's helpful for us to be able to name the territory that we're in. And so that's one of the things I hope people will see just as a top line, baseline understanding. Yes. Okay. So that is the first big thing. Right. I think uh, one of the things I was really hoping is 
to give women a picture of what faithfulness looks like in the midst of perilous times. These women show us what it looks like um, in a bifurcated, polarized world. You know, on one side of the Nile, you have Pharaoh's palace. On the other side, you have the brickyards of Egypt, very polarized. And you see how these women navigate those kind of circumstances. They are clever. They are subversive. They are sometimes doing, taking great risks. They are forming unorthodox partnerships. They are, they are doing things we wouldn't fully expect. They are lying to Pharaoh. They are, right, lying to the authority of their day. And yet we're shown that this is what faithfulness looks like. And I think that part of what that does is give us freedom to imagine other ways that we can be involved, yes, in our families, yes, in our congregations, but also in our communities at large. We are given permission to be fully engaged in the ways in which people need to be set free, ourselves included. And so these women give us a picture, but they also give us permission. You know, I feel like a lot of uh, women have been asking, are we really able to be involved in social change outside of the mm -hmm. church? In a lot of evangelical spaces, they have not been given permission, right? You can't be part of the elder board. You can't be a deacon. A lot of times you can't be in the pulpit. You certainly can't be out in the streets protesting. You certainly right. can't partner with a person who's a Muslim. You, you, there are things you just can't do. Right. And what I want to say is this story really gives us permission to imagine other ways that we can be involved in setting people free. And if you need a biblical picture of it, okay, here it is. Mm -hmm. Follow these women. Get in formation with these women because God blessed them. The midwives lied to Pharaoh's face and disobeyed him. And the story says that God blessed them. You know, like mm -hmm. we are, this is the what we're invited into. And so and that's what I would hope people would get. Absolutely. And it's it's hard because it's such a contradictory message to what so often we get in the white evangelical spaces. I mean, yes. like I said, especially living in the Bible Belt, I know that's the mess not the message that my girls have gotten in church. And it's mm -hmm. sometimes hard to find spaces that you do get those messages. Mm -hmm. And that's why books like yours and hearing and seeing the women's stories mm -hmm. through a different lens are so important. With that, though, I know comes, you talk a lot about privilege in your book. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we're also, it's not just an, an easy women are off the hook, but we're also asked as women with privilege to look at that privilege and examine yes. that and our social position and what it requires us to give up. So can you talk a little bit about, about that? Because I think that really spoke to me and I think sure. it's an important message. Well, I think one of the things uh, that I love about engaging in the Exodus story as an adult that I didn't get when I was a child, but as an adult, I was able to see the socio-political world that the storyteller was, was creating for us, right? Like I said, there are palaces and places of privilege and people who live lives of ease. And there are people in the brickyards who are living under threat, enslaved, with their children, not even guaranteed a future. And we see the ways in which Pharaoh manipulates, see that his own fear shapes public policy. We see ways in which Egyptians become complicit. Mm -hmm. I mean, the day that I really read that verse where Pharaoh decides that it's public policy now to kill baby boys mm -hmm. that are Hebrew, 
And the little, it says, and all Egyptians, like all of the Egyptians became part of that. And I was like, man, that's me. Mm. In my story, I'm the one who's living, I'm living in the courts of Pharaoh now. I'm part of the all that is implicated by the public policy of, the, of my Pharaoh. And so you, all of a sudden you start to recognize that this is a very political world in the Exodus narrative. And part of what these women, I think, challenge us to do is to see our place in it. Am I in the shadow of the brickyard? Am I in the courts of Pharaoh? What does that require of me? I can stay paralyzed in my privilege. You know, what can I do? My father's killing babies, but I, I can't even get an audience with him. I'm not even his favorite daughter. You know, but I'm sad about it. Or does she does she take a risk when a living baby arrives at her feet and leverage the little bit of privilege that she has for the sake of justice, for the sake of liberation? You know, and I think that's a constant challenge to me, you know, is I don't I don't walk the corridors of the governor's office. I don't have clout in Washington, D.C., but what am I doing with, with the babies that are arriving at my feet? What am I doing to partner with the women who I do interact with to bring about freedom? How am I leveraging the little bit of benefit, the little bit of privilege I do have? How am I using that and not letting myself off the hook? What, mm-hmm. what does that mean today, giving something up or sacrificing mm-hmm. something, some privilege? Well, I think some of it, Christina Cleveland was really helpful for me in thinking through the ways in which privilege works. Christina Cleveland is an African-American author, thinker, public theologian, yes. and she's, she's, not, you know, she's not going to coddle you or hold your hand. She expects you to woman up and yes. enter into hard conversations. But she helped me see, you know, there are certain spaces where I am more educated than others. My education makes me, gives me a, a bit of privilege. Other spaces I show up in, and because I have lighter skin than the other women in the room, I will be received differently. I will be treated differently. Sometimes I go into, you know, even in Burundi, which is, of course, African country, I'm a minority. But because of the way colonization works, my whiteness I still get treated differently and I'm still given the seat of honor. I'm given better treatment in a restaurant. I'm deferred to because I'm white, right? So it's, you start to see where does, where does that show up? And then, well, what do I do with that? You know, I had a a girlfriend, she's a, a, Tahani is a Palestinian immigrant to the U.S., Muslim, wears the hijab. I mean, she looks exactly like a beautiful Palestinian woman. Mm -hmm. There's no doubting from the color of her skin and her ebony hair, which you can't see when she's wearing her job, but she is treated differently than I am treated when we're here in Arizona. And I learned from her, I learned to see the world from her eyes when we were raising our kids together and in and out of school together with our little ones and going to the parks together and the ways people would look at her and treat her kids. And it really challenged me. And so when she had a hard pregnancy, I was the one going with her to the doctor and Mm. making sure that the doctors gave her a follow-up appointment and making sure that they repeated things more slowly so she understood. And right, it's like learning 
oh, even the fact that I know how my medical system works, but an immigrant has a harder time understanding it, that's a privilege. And so for me to partner with her for those nine months of a high-risk pregnancy was one way to take my privilege, what I knew, what came easy to me, what was given to me, and make sure that that advantage accrued to her by going to appointments with her, helping her understand things, advocating for her in a system that often didn't treat her well. But I think that is, you know, that's just one small way that for me, I had to learn how do I make my privilege work for somebody else? There's so many different ways and examples, but I do think it starts with like you really, and me, I'm in that phase right now, really examining your privilege, mm-hmm. recognizing it, admitting that we do have it in so many ways, and then what to, yes. what to do with it and how to leverage and use it. Yeah. So with all the, the 12 women, I could go on about each of them, and that's why people <laughs> need to get the book so they can, but who did you find when you dug in and got re- researched and really got into the stories the most, I don't know, fascinating, the most inspiring, the most surprising, maybe? Which one needled me the most, right? Some days yes, I'm, yes. I'm needled the most by um, Jochebed, the birth mother of Moses. And the thing about Jochebed that always, that recently has been challenging me is that she looked across the river and saw all of those elite women living lives of ease. And she noticed that one of them might be different. And she mm-hmm. was willing to take the risk that maybe this one wasn't going to, maybe this one saw things differently than Pharaoh. Maybe this one wasn't like all the others. Maybe even this one isn't like my own stereotype of what Egyptian women are like. And I I think that challenges me because I have my own stereotypes right now. Mm -hmm. And I have to look and sometimes say, might there be partners for me? in that demographic, if I had eyes to see, and if I was willing to take the risk on some of them, mm. you know, she, she disarms my easy, yeah, my, the ease with which I can paint everybody with the same brush who voted a certain way, right? right? That, that is hard for me. And that, so Jochebed really needles me in that way. But Bethia is probably the one I feel the deepest kinship with as yeah. a fellow woman of privilege, as a fellow adopted mother. I feel most consistently that she and I are kindred spirits yeah. <laughs> on very yeah. similar journeys. And she has become a bit of a patron saint or at least a you know, compañero uh, with me on this, on this journey. And I'd say the most surprising were probably the seven sisters of Midian. They, they were a surprise to me because I had always thought there were these seven unnamed sisters. And well, we get the name of one of them because she marries Moses, right. but these seven sisters. And I guess I always thought, you know, pastoral, right? Uh-huh. That they were just these beautiful little waifs across the Midian landscape with their fluffy little white sheep. The surprise to me was one day actually seeing them as shepherdesses. They were shepherds. They would have had calloused hands. They would have had the musculature developed from days and days and days on end of wrangling sheep and dealing with stingy whale uh, wells and having to navigate um, the, the masculine terrain and all the shepherds. I mean, we get to see the one story when Moses came and saved the day. I want, I want to know what all the other days looked like when Moses wasn't there. And they had to deal with those hostile shepherds. They still had to deal with all of those men every other day that he wasn't there. How did they do it? Was it, you know, with their feminine wiles? Was it with their cunning? Was it through negotiation? 
Was it being quicker to the well than the men? I mean, like, I want to know, but, but obviously these were strong women. These were capable women. These women had to have some strategies. They had to have some savvy and they had to work together. The picture of solidarity of these seven women. And in, in Hebrew, seven is a picture of completeness. Whenever you get something in sevens, you're getting a picture of completeness. And so here we have this complete sisterhood, this sense of solidarity, this beautiful, complete unit who knew how to navigate hostile terrain together. And that, that was a surprise to me. I didn't know how I was going to write yeah. that chapter at the front end because I'm like, what can I say about them? But boy, yeah, I will all agree. Me. I was pleasantly surprised with that too because I thought there's nothing. Of, where did she? Because at first I thought, where did she get twelve women? And then I was, oh yeah. But it was very rich. There's so much. There's so much deeper than you think at the surface for mm-hmm. what we've just skimmed over and been taught. You don't have your book on you, do you? I do. You do. Would you yeah, read? I, I, I was going to give you a heads up, but then our, all our connection <laughs> issues. I'm like, I totally forgot about that because sure. I love this paragraph as I finished up your book today. Day. 182 uh, that starts with we are all Miriam's descendants mm. so those two paragraphs would you mind ending us with reading those two we are all Miriam's descendants with work to do songs to sing and liberation to practice until every pharaoh is dethroned and every captive is set free women are not the soft side of the church work we aren't meant to educate only women and children We're not serving well only when we're in the support roles, supporting men in leadership. We are called to be exodus strong and to work alongside men to set people on both sides of the Nile free from slavery, complicity, and all manner of injustice. Liberation work is part of our exodus mandate. The women in the exodus narrative demonstrate the valuable and necessary energy of women of faith at work in the world. They see in a certain way that is instructive for us. Shifra and Pua saw no difference in gender when they delivered children. Their sight was rooted in their fear of God. Pharaoh saw in order to differentiate and divide, but the midwives saw with deeper discernment. They saw life. Jochebed saw the creation goodness in her son and saw a possible ally in the woman across the river. Bethia saw the Hebrew baby and the chance to rescue him from death by her father's edict. The seven sisters of Midian saw the Egyptian who saved them from the shepherds and they introduced him to their father. And in the darkness, Zipporah saw that Moses was under threat and moved swiftly to deliver him from death. Without these women who saw clearly and acted accordingly, Moses would not have survived Egypt or Midian. Mm, Thank you. And that Mm. just, like I said, I read through that a couple times this morning because it's so, so profound and so true. And just, it just really, really hit me and struck me. I just thank you again for your voice, this conversation, your book. Like I said, your book, Defiant, we'll put a link to that on the show notes. It just came out and was released this month. And you have another book called Mm -hmm. Adopted that came out in 2017. And then tell us where we can find you. Are you very active on social media? Do you have a website? All of that. I do have a website. It's, you know, kellynickandeha.com, but I'm most active on Instagram. So every now and then I'll, you know, I love to post pictures of what I'm reading and places and people that are dear to me and every now and then get into the stories with some conversations or thoughts. So that is where I'm most active. Um, I'm on Twitter a little bit. I'm on Facebook a little bit, but really 
Instagram is where the action is. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll put your, we'll put the link to all of that where people can find Great. you. And I'm still, uh, there's such a love hate relationship with all, with all of that. I'm still uh, I know. trying to make myself get on Instagram and all of that more, but especially now it's so, so important to be connecting with people on all of those. Yes. But like I said, we'll put links to those. And I, I'm just thankful for you, Kelly. And thanks for dealing with the technical issues today. <laughs> well, no, it was really fun to chat. And it looks like once we got in, in the flow of things, it's, it seemed to go well. Yeah, it was just the unplugging and plugging in our microphones, apparently. That, sometimes <laughs> it is the simple. My husband's always like, turn it off and turn it on. And yeah, if that that's, doesn't work, that's then the, we have a problem. Me too. That's what I'm going back to, the simplest solution here. Exactly. So, very good. Well, I mean it when I said I loved your book, and I'm Thank excited so to dive into this one with friends. I hope my conversation with Kelly both challenged and encouraged you like it did me. As much as we talked about with the Exodus story, we really just scratched the surface with all the goodness that's in her new book. So I encourage you to grab a copy for yourself and see how the Exodus story fits into your story. The link to both of Kelly's books and where to connect with her can be found at HerStorySpeaks.com. Thanks for listening in with us today.